All right. So we are getting close to the end of the book of Revelation. If you didn't know this, we have been in a series this fall going through the whole book of Revelation. We're getting close to the end. I think there's only three more weeks in this series, uh, including today. And today, the section that we're in, it's chapters 19 and 20. We did the first half of 19 last week, so we'll do the second half of 19 this week, and then we'll go through all of chapter 20. And here's the thing about this section in Revelation. It is some of the most confusing and debated about sections in all of Scripture. And if you just take the book of Revelation, certainly this section that we're going to be going through today is the section that Christians throughout history even, not just us American Christians, but Christians throughout history have debated and pondered and wondered about and had ideas about and all kinds of differing views and ideas. So that's where we're going to be at today in this book. With all that being said, even though there can be stuff that's tough in there to understand, so tough that even one of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, even when I read his book on this section, uh, he was like, you know, we might not be able to figure this out. And he usually has an answer for everything. So even though that's the case, I think there are things we can understand from this section, and there are really huge and important truths for us as Christians. And so, so this section, in Revelation 19, verse 11, you might even kind of count just the beginning of 19 in this, depending on what kind of scholar you are. But this section of Revelation, it takes a shift into looking at the actual return of Jesus, what it gives all these scenes uh, that depict the return of Jesus. When Jesus comes back to earth, what he will do, what that will look like, and, and there's all these scenes depicting different aspects of that. Now, if you want a great little scholarly word, you want to learn a scholarly the theology word, uh, that word that scholars use to describe the return of Jesus is parousia, parousia, okay? And so this section that we're in today starts these scenes, these different scenes looking at the parousia. Some scholars say there's, at the end of Revelation, seven scenes of the parousia shown to us. That seems about right with how seven has been used, but some kind of debate that a little bit. And so here's what happens. God begins to communicate what his return to earth will look like. And as he does that, he does what the rest of the book has done. He uses symbols and images and even these kind of like image scenes and stories to tell us about his return, to describe his return, to help us know truths about his return. Now, if you've been in this series, if you've been listening to this series at all, you're going to be really annoyed by the next thing that I say, and I'm going to say it probably 10 times in this sermon at least, but we have to remember the book of Revelation is written in the genre of a Jewish apocalypse. So the book itself is an apocalypse, which we learned is not movies about the end of time, but we learned in the first century, Jewish apocalypse or apocalypses in general would talk about the end of history in one sense, but they would do it using all of these symbols and images. And the Jewish apocalypses would use symbols from the Old Testament or symbols from the Roman culture, or symbols from their own Jewish culture to do it. And so as we get into this section today, it is really, really, really important for us to remember God is still using symbols to teach true things about who he is. God is teaching us true things with these symbols, but not 
literal things. A lot of times, all of a sudden, what scholars do or even just Christians do is they'll read the whole book, see the symbols for what they are, see their symbolic value, and then when they get to this section, all of a sudden they start going, they're not symbols anymore. I'm going to start interpreting all of this literally. And I just think you're going to run into different sorts of problems when you begin to do that, and you're going to miss what the symbolic imagery is trying to communicate to you about God and his return. Okay, so in this section, how we're going to break it up today is we're going to look at three main symbols that I see in the second half of chapter 19 and in chapter 20. So those symbols are uh, Jesus the just, the millennium, and the lake of fire. Those last two symbols being kind of infamous symbols from the book of Revelation. So what we're going to do today with each of those symbols is we're going to look at that symbol and explain it one at a time as we go through this section in Revelation. Okay, so that's where we're going to do it. Let's hop into it by looking at this image of Jesus the just. This image of Jesus the just. Okay, Uh, chapter 19, verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 16. Here's what it says, talking about God's return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so I call the imagery that we just read in this section, imagery of Jesus the just. Jesus returns and he is depicted as this warrior king. In fact, a lot of the ways that Jesus is described, you might not know this because you're not Roman, but a lot of the ways that Jesus is described is with the same sort of imagery that the Parthian army or the Parthian kings themselves had. The Parthians were in that day one of the the biggest threats to Rome. A lot of Roman citizens were uh, afraid of the Parthians. And so a lot of the imagery John has taken from the Parthian army and applying it to Jesus And we get this picture of Jesus the just, as I call him, but he's this like warrior king is what is described. Now, here is the truth that I think this imagery depicts about Jesus and about the end of time and about his returns, okay? Here's the truth. Jesus will return and he will defeat and judge evil completely Because he's already won the war. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The truth this imagery of Jesus the just shows us is Jesus will return. He will defeat and judge evil completely because he's already won the war. This imagery is not trying to communicate that Jesus is going to come back, get all his Christians, and say, let's go fight the Antichrist and the evil nations. 
It's not trying to predict some kind of huge battle at the end of time. Often Christians have taken this section and they they have taken it very literally and said at some point at the end of history, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to get all of of his martyrs in particular usually, but Christians, and they're going to go to the Valley of Megiddo and they're going to fight the Antichrist and his nations that are in his control and Jesus is going to win because he's the most powerful. That's not what it's trying to predict. John is simply using the images of his day to communicate that Jesus will return to defeat and judge evil. And Jesus is more powerful than any evil in the world. That's what these images are, are this image of Jesus the just is trying to communicate. Now, you might not believe me because this is not what we've heard before often. We've often heard, you know, Get your swords ready, right? Like, this is like, and like, there's going to be a battle at the end of time. Like, this is what we've heard. But I want to show you why some clues in the text itself that point to this being imagery that communicates truth about God and what he will do, but not predicts about a literal battle that Jesus is going to head up, okay? So here's one clue in the text. Jesus comes as this warrior king. He arrives as this warrior king, and he is already soaked in blood that was a sign in that day that the battle was won and the king had won that battle but Jesus shows up already in blood I think this points to the fact that the cross the cross was the place where Jesus defeated evil and death once and for all okay so that's what that's a clue that there's not some kind of literal battle that Jesus is going to take us to Uh, Jesus secondly uh, here's another clue Jesus has a sword. A lot of Christians will be like, Jesus got a sword. Well, it's coming from his mouth. And here's the thing. If you're going to take it literally, what you have to literally imagine is Jesus is holding a sword in his mouth and fighting people like this, okay? Don't take some literal and others not literal. <laughs> like, like, take it all. So, I mean, he's Jesus, so he could do that. Like, he's that good. But, like, what it's trying to communicate is this. It's trying to say, listen, Jesus' power is not found in a literal sword that he stabs people with from his mouth. His power is in his words. He's so powerful, his words defeat his enemies. Right? Doesn't that remind you of the creation story? God is so powerful, his words create everything. Jesus, God in the flesh, is so powerful, his words are powerful enough to defeat all evil. Okay, so I think that's another clue why this isn't predicting a literal battle. Uh, A a final kind of clue to look at and see that this is symbolic imagery is as we get this picture of Jesus, this warrior king, and we get this description of, of the end of the battle, what we realize is there's no battle, right? We have this warrior king show up for a battle that just doesn't really even happen. In chapter 20, we'll see like an angel just plucks Satan and and throws him into a bottomless pit. But there's just no battle that actually happens. There's everything that kind of like surrounds a battle that's described. But there's no actual battle scene described. I think that should clue us into the fact that John is just trying to take these first century images and use them to communicate that Jesus the just is coming back and he will judge and defeat evil and remove evil from his creation. Okay? 
Now, all that being said, even if you begin to read this section this way, it can still kind of, especially for us as Westerners in our cultural context, it can still make you feel a little queasy, right? You kind of go, I don't know if I like this part of the story, right? A lot of us, we go, I don't want to be judged. A lot of us Westerners, we even go, I don't want others to be judged. And we know from reading the Bible that by the God of the Bible standards, who I think is the living God overall, we all have evil in us. And so then when we read this section about Jesus the just coming and taking care of evil and eradicating evil, we're like, I don't know if I like this part. Here's something that I think should help us when we have those moments where we don't want Jesus the just to come. When we read sections like this and we go, I don't know if I like this idea of Jesus the just. Verse 12, and it's what verse 12 says about Jesus that should help us. It says this, it says that Jesus is faithful and true. That's his name. And it is in righteousness he judges and makes war. God's promise to us is that his judgments are righteous and true. That as he judges the evil of the world, as he takes care of the evil in the world at the end of history, that he will do it righteously. I think another way you could say this is that his judgments are good. Right? These scenes, they, they, in chapter 19 and even 20, they, they may startle us. Which, by the way, was a bit what God, through John, was trying to do. To wake us up to our own evil and to the evil in this world. But even if they startle us, God, in verse 12 right here, says that evil will be defeated and the way that it's defeated will be righteous and good. You can take comfort in that. Here's what I like to think. Whenever I'm wrestling with the judgment of God and how he will judge evil and the different depictions you see of that in Scripture... Here's what comforts me, is I believe that at the end of time, when however it plays out, however we get to see, or however much we get to see God make judgment and take care of evil, I think if we see his judgments and can see all of them clearly, we will go, that was good. Like, as he judges evil and as he takes care of evil, instead of me, who often acts like a mini demigod here going, I don't know if I would do it like that, God. I think at the end of history, I will be before, like, just falling before him, and I think I'll just be like, that was actually the right way to deal with evil. Whatever ways he deals with evil and however he deals with it, I think when I see it and understand it in, in its true goodness without sin in me, I think I'll go, man, that was good. That was amazing judgment. I really think that will happen to us. So this imagery of Jesus just, for some, I think it's actually hopeful because they've experienced evil, but for others, it can make us cringe. But I'll just say this. I think Jesus the just is righteous and true and faithful, and we'll even see that in his judgment. That even from our perspective, we'll go, man, that was the right way to deal with that. Okay, so that's the first image in this section, Jesus the just. Now let's look at the tricky millennium imagery of which there's no debate whatsoever. Everyone knows exactly what it means, okay? It's a joke for anyone newer to the faith. Uh, <laughs> chapter 20, verse 1, says this. I'm going to read through verse 10, a bit of a long section. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit 
and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, let those images kind of pour over your imagination while I take a drink. It's a good way to trick you into letting me take a drink. So, there are a lot of details here. Uh, a lot of confusing details here. And because of that, this section in Revelation has had lots of debate since really early on in Christian history. I think you can start seeing stuff, I think even in the second century, where they're, where they're like, I don't, I don't know what this section says, or they have different opinions about it. And the debate, it tends to center on this thing, this image that we're going to look at called the millennium, which in here it says this thousand years. There's this thousand years that's mentioned a couple of times in there. In fact, here's what happens often with the book of Revelation and often with people who consider themselves like end times scholars or end times preachers. Often, how they understand and interpret that 1,000 years or the millennium that becomes the lens by which they interpret the rest of the book of Revelation. Many, many scholars do that. Many end times scholars and preachers do that. They go, what do I think about that a thousand years? And then they kind of apply that to the whole book and how they interpret the whole book. So it probably comes as no surprise at this point in the series that that is not how I interpret the book, that how I interpret the millennium is not the lens through which I interpret the whole book. The millennium is just in this little section, and so I think to take it and use it to, to interpret the whole book, I think, is a huge mistake, okay? Here's, here's something important to notice. John, with this apocalypse, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is doing what many Jewish apocalypses would do. Jewish apocalypses of his day would tell of the judgment of God as happening in phases. Often the apocalypses, that's, that the other apocalypses that, that Jewish people and maybe even others wrote would talk about this restoration of God, this return of God, this return of God to come and deal with evil. 
And they would talk about it as happening in phases. It would be like, phase one, this happens. Phase two, this happens. Phase three, this happens. And so John is following that same model of talking about God's restoration because that way of talking about God's restoration was common in his day. So all this stuff that that we read in these verses that, that some say is supposedly to be taken literally, I don't think is supposed to be taken literally. Even if these images are being used by God through John to communicate true things about God's return and what he will do at the end of history. So here's what I think about the millennium imagery. The millennium imagery is not trying to communicate to us the manner or the literal details of God's restoration, but rather the results of God's restoration, what the results of God's restoration will be. When you begin to interpret this section literally, you run into all kinds of problems, right? I just brought one up earlier with Jesus with the sword in his mouth, right? Like this is, like there's just, you run into all sorts of problems when you begin to take these images literally and try to interpret them literally, Okay, so to be clear, I don't think this millennium imagery is talking about some far off a thousand years set out or in the past a thousand years set out. I don't think Satan will be thrown into a literal bottomless pit, but I hope he is. But that being said, I still think there are true meanings behind these images. So here's the story that we got in those 10 verses. We have Satan, a.k.a. the dragon, a.k.a. the serpent a.k.a. the devil. He's got a lot of names. We get him just captured, thrown into a pit, falling for a thousand years. On my bad days, I like to just imagine it. I'm just like, what's that like? It's, I, I, I wish I interpreted this literally because that just makes it more fun for me. So that happens. He's falling for a thousand years. Then seemingly at the beginning of that thousand years, God resurrects all of his followers. He doesn't resurrect everybody. He resurrects his followers. What you're going to see in the next part of chapter 20 is he resurrects everybody. And that's why you have this uh, language of the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is for his followers. The second resurrection is everybody else. Okay? So he he, uh, resurrects his followers, puts some of them in charge of things. And then the thousand years ends in the story. Satan is fished out of this bottomless pit, and he and some nations, represented by some names from the book of Ezekiel, they go to fight the people of God at their camp. Again, another reason that you shouldn't take this literally, because it talks about us camping for a thousand years. That has to be hell, in my opinion, if they're talking about us camping for a thousand years. I don't know. But anyways... So the, so the Satan and these evil nations, Gog and Magog, uh, surround the camp of the Lord, and then no battle happens. Fire comes from heaven, fires them, and then an angel or something throws them into the lake of fire. And we see uh, the dragon thrown in. We see the beast, which we've learned in this series, probably represented one of the Caesars. And then we see the second beast, but this moment referred to as a false prophet, all thrown into the lake of fire. So... That image story, again, I don't think it's talking about the literal way that this will go down, but I, I do think it's talking about the results of what God will do and what his restoration will look like and what he will do with evil in one sense. So 
I think these things represent different aspects and things that are true about eternity. I think that a thousand years, people love debate it. I, I just think that the, the 1,000 years was, at, especially at that time, just a large, round number. And it's used here to represent just a powerful, long-lasting rule of God that begins at the end of history. That's what the 1,000, we've seen numbers used like this all throughout Revelation. So I think the 1,000 years is just saying God will rule forever is what it's trying to say. So then it gets more confusing, though, when you look at this. Satan gets thrown in this pit, the thousand years happens, and then he's let out at the, the end of the thousand years. You kind of, okay, what does this represent? What, what, what meaning can we find from this? I think this is what's happening. I think John is simply following the patter, pattern of Jewish apocalyptic storytelling where the restoration of God happens in, in these phases, not meaning for us to take it literally, but meaning for us to understand the truth behind it. So, here, here, this might help. By telling a story in which Satan is bound, then let out after the people of God have been resurrected, given their resurrection, eternal bodies, and he's led out to go and attack him, we get this, go and attack the people of God, I should say, we get this very important truth told from that story. We find out that in the resurrection, in eternity, in the renewed creation, where we will get to live forever with God, in that time, Sin and evil will not be able to get to us. Sin and evil will not be able to tempt us. Sin and evil will be destroyed and taken away from God's good creation. John communicates all of that in this cool way by using this pattern of Jewish apocalypse. So, by using this literary device of the millennium, we can know for sure that in eternity with God, we will not be able to succumb to temptation, to sin, like Adam and Eve in the garden did. It's kind of like God is using these images to say, here's what the people of God are like before the resurrection. Here's what the people of God are like after the resurrection. Before they're resurrected, evil and death could affect them. After the resurrection, after they've been resurrected, death and evil can't even get to them. So that's what I think the millennium imagery is communicating. I will say this, there are lots of different views on the millennium. There's lots of different views. There tends to be like three primary views. There's lots of different views of the millennium that Christians have, and that is, that is okay. Mine is the right one, but that's okay that they want to hold the wrong one, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm only kidding, but I do think I am correct. And so, but I could be totally wrong, honestly. Like, it's, it's been healthily debated throughout Christian history, sometimes not as healthy. So it's okay to have different views on this. But I think the main lesson of this imagery that we all should get is Satan will be removed from creation, we will be resurrected, and sin and evil will not be able to affect us anymore. All Christians should agree on that. 
That's what I think the millennium is trying to communicate, not the actual order of events like many try to make it communicate. All right? So, two images down. Jesus the just and the millennium, now the lake of fire. Not as fun one. So, let's go to verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so we get this imagery of God on his throne. Now it's white, and he's judging the world. You get every person ever throughout history being brought to God for judgment. You get these bodies from the sea. This was kind of like John's way of answering what happens to bodies we don't bury properly. A lot of people died out at sea, and they kind of were like, what, what happens to them at the end of time? Are they judged because their bodies are lost? And so this was just John's way of saying everybody will stand before God, even if they weren't buried proper, properly. And they're all getting judged, everybody from everywhere, from all of history. And you get death giving people to God. You get Hades giving people, people to God. And there, everyone's judged. But then death in Hades is kind of judged as well and thrown into the lake of fire. So, a few things to help us as, as we try to unpack this, this imagery here. From earlier in the book, we know two things. It is those that trust in Jesus, those that trust in the Lamb, as Jesus is often referred to in Revelation, those that trust in the Lamb and follow him, they are the ones that have their names written in the book of life. And then the second thing we know, just from this chapter even, is that the lake of fire is where Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, where they were thrown uh, for their opposition to God, where they were punished for their opposition to God. Again, we have to remember, as we try to unpack this and understand this imagery, John is using first century symbols to point to truths about God's judgment here. And we have to realize they are symbols. Take, for instance, the use of this word Hades here. Hades was the the Greek religious understanding of the afterlife. And John, as well as Jesus in the Gospels, has no problem taking the Greek understanding of the afterlife and using it to point to what God will do at the end of history. Now, as Christians, there is good reason that we don't still use the term Hades for the afterlife, and it's because the rest of the New Testament helps us flesh that out a bit. But John and Jesus had no problem using that symbol of Hades to help us understand what would happen at the end of history. Okay, so with that being said, because these are symbols and images, I I just want to be clear, I personally don't think there is this like literal lake of fire. 
I don't think there's this literal lake of fire. But here is the truth behind all of these symbols that we just read in verses 11 through 15. I think all these symbols together point to the fact that at the end of time, every human will be judged by God. At the end of time, every human will be judged by God. And those that have trusted in Jesus and looked to what he did on the cross and through the resurrection, they will have life with him forever. And those that trust in the beast and the dragon and the dragon and the beast ways, they will go with the beast and the dragon. I don't know exactly what that place will look like. It's described here as the second death or the lake of fire. I don't know what it will exactly look like. I don't think it's like a literal lake of fire somewhere. But I do know that God depicts it as a lake of fire or a second death so that we know that without God, there's no life found in this world. Without God, there's no life found. Jesus in the Gospels, when he talks about this place that Revelation talks about, Jesus calls this place hell. The Greek word that Jesus uses is Gehenna. Gehenna is what uh, he calls this place. And, and if you look into what that word means, Gehenna was a literal place. It was a literal place in Israel. I've taken a trip to Israel, and my Jewish tour guide said, that's hell over there. And I was like, what? <laughs> it, was like, it just looks like a valley <laughs> type of a thing. He goes, and, and I found out that Gehenna, there's a little bit of debate about exactly what the literal place of Gehenna was, but Gehenna was probably like a trash dump that was often on fire. It was often a trash dump that people would come and take and burn things to, and reduce it to ash so there was less waste and garbage in their country, in their world. And so when Jesus is using Gehenna and, and as, as his word for hell, he's not communicating when people die, they will go to that literal pile of trash. He is communicating eventually, at the end of time, God will let you keep choosing what you're choosing. And if you're choosing yourself, if you're not choosing God, God will let you to keep choosing that. And that, the place that you'll end up will be a place without him. And that is as bad as a trash dump that's on fire. They had a, it was very vivid imagery for them to go, man, he's saying that a life without him is as bad as Gehenna. Or it will be like a second death, as John calls it. Christians, they have often made the mistake of taking the imagery in this section literally. Other Christians have often made the mistake of ignoring the imagery here. Revelation says about our lives here on earth that the stakes are high. There's an eternity with God described as life and all sorts of other good things. There's an eternity without God that is described as a lake of fire and a second death. How can we hear from the Lord? How can we hear these truths without just like being afraid all the time and crying every day? One, I don't know <laughs> exactly. I think because of our cultural context, this stuff is really hard for us to hear. But there are a few things, five at least, that I'll mention here that have comforted me as I've wrestled with God's judgment and 
his symbolic depictions of hell, which, I, to be clear, I think is real. So here's, here's some of the stuff that comforts me in the midst of this. One, it's good that God is going to deal with evil and not just ignore it. It's good. We've talked a lot about this in this series. Anyone that's truly experienced evil or seen evil knows that if there was a benevolent, good, perfect king that could deal with it justly, that would be amazing. And that's what Revelation says. And so it's good that God is going to deal with evil, okay? Two, part of, of the message of Revelation is God is being merciful as long as he can, so as many as possible can see the goodness of the lamb and turn to him. That's, that's a huge part of the wrestle of, of, I think, the three sets of seals going, okay, this is going on, we see these evil things, and God is saying, I'm, I'm being merciful as long as I can toward evil so all, so as many as possible could turn to me. Okay? Three. This imagery, even though it's scary and startling, it does let us know that in the new creation, which we'll talk more about over the next two weeks, in the renewed earth, the perfect earth, the sinless earth, evil will have no power. Evil will have no power there, and this imagery does help us to see that very strongly. I'm glad, I've honestly, at different times in my life, I've worried that what if I get to heaven and what if I'm just like Adam and Eve and I blow it, right? Like, what happens? Like, is there an elevator to hell? Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm glad that this imagery is strong enough for me to realize I won't be able to blow it. Evil will be taken care of, taken out of me. Okay, four, something else that comforts me as I wrestle with this idea of the lake of fire, Hell is this, God's work of judgment is strange to him. It's alien to him. If you go to Isaiah 28, verse 21, it says that very thing about God's judgment. God is rising up to judge a couple nations, I believe it is, and it says that God's work of judgment itself, it's strange to him. It's alien to him. In other words, it's saying it's weird to him to judge. It's foreign to him to judge. What Isaiah 28, 21 communicates about God's judgment is that his first foot forward is actually mercy and love and compassion. But what we see in Revelation with this imagery is part of his love and his mercy for those on earth eventually is to judge and take care of evil. That comforts me that God's judgment His words to us, he's like, this is strange to me. This is alien to me. Okay, five, and I think this is maybe the most comforting of all. The story of Jesus in Revelation is that he he will take care of all evil at the end of history. But I think that blood-soaked cloak he's wearing points to the fact that Jesus defeated evil on the cross by giving himself over to evil human hands and by drinking the cup of the wrath of God himself so we don't have to. What Jesus did on the cross makes it so we don't have to be given over to evil and we don't have to be given over to the wrath of God towards sin and evil. Jesus on the cross makes it so that second death can pass over all of us. 
Somehow, the cross and the resurrection, when we trust in Jesus' power and his work through the cross and the resurrection on judgment day, even though all of us have sin and evil in us, the cross and the resurrection make it so we will be seen as righteous on judgment day. All of our names will be written in the book of life, even though... You and I, we are not good enough to purge evil from ourselves. That's like one of the main lessons, I think, of the Old Testament. You can't purge evil on your own. You need God to purge the evil from you. I I, I would say this even. I think Jesus on the cross, I think in one sense, and this isn't a crazy thing. A lot of Christians throughout history have believed this in some kind of similar form. He, in one sense, he is experiencing the lake of fire so that we don't have to experience the lake of fire ourselves. That's the power of the cross. That's the beauty of the cross. It is a rescue to us. Jesus' death on the cross is our life preserver. It is our way into life. It is our way to get our name written in the book of life. Jesus will judge justly and rightly at the end of time. He will. The lake of fire imagery is intense. I don't think it's literal, but it does point to the truth that God will at some point judge every human throughout history. Instead of, instead of letting the lake of fire imagery like scare you into following Jesus, let the imagery be like a warning label on a bottle of poison. When you read through it and you're scared by it, let it be like a warning label on a bottle of poison where you read it and go, if I keep drinking my way of life, if I keep choosing my way of life, it's going to result in it killing me. Let the lake of fire imagery not scare you, but be like a warning label on a bottle of poison. I promise, I promise you, I wouldn't be here if I don't believe these things I'm about to say. I promise you, God is good. Even if he doesn't seem like from your perspective on this imagery, I promise you, God is good. I promise you, he loves you. And I promise you that even his judgment will be good in the end. Even if it doesn't seem like it is now. Church, may we follow Jesus the just and proclaim him to the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. These images are startling and confusing and tricky, I think, God, to understand. And so I pray that however you used me to depict them this morning, that I I did what you want to do with them. And even if I didn't, God, I pray that you just kind of course correct and help all of us to get from this imagery what we're supposed to get and understand about you and your return and how you will rule at the end of history and for all of eternity. Father God, help us to see your good father in this. I've watched the doctrine of your judgment get used and twisted by people to walk away from you or to misunderstand you or whatever it might be, God, or it's just something that a lot of us wrestle with. And so I pray, God, that this morning that we see you as our Father, that we know you love us, that we know that 
because of your love, you have to deal with evil in some way at some point, and that we would just take solace in the fact that it is you, the perfectly good father, that will be doing that and taking care of evil. Help us to trust in moments when we don't want to trust. God, we love you and we need you. Thank you for being our father. Amen.